there, this is Stuart Haynes, and you're listening to the iFormRx podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. One of the most powerful therapeutic tools available to every pharmacist is the placebo effect. And while every medication that is approved for use must provide therapeutic benefits beyond what a placebo can produce, the fact of the matter is that placebos, although inert in terms of their pharmacological properties, are not inert in terms of the effect that they can stimulate in our bodies. A belief in a medication can stimulate physiological changes. Similarly, a fear of side effects can lead to a higher risk of side effects. I've been fascinated by the power of placebos and their sibling, nocebos, for many years and feel that we need to learn more about how to harness this power to achieve optimal health outcomes. Medications are more than pharmacologically active drug delivery systems, but they also stimulate our beliefs, both positive and negative, about our healthcare delivery system and about the practitioners who recommend or prescribe them. And here today to talk about the placebo and nocebo effect are Dr. Sarah Wettergreen and Dr. Joseph Nardolillo from the University of Colorado, Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Dr. Wettergreen is an ambulatory care pharmacy specialist who practices at UC Health Lone Tree Primary Care. And Dr. Nardolillo is a PGY-2 Ambulatory Care Pharmacy Practice Resident. Sarah, Joe, it's great to have you both on the iFormerX podcast as first-time contributors. Welcome. Thanks for having us, Stuart. I'm excited to discuss this interesting topic. Great to be here, Stuart. Thank you very much. So before we talk about the study you reviewed for iFormerX, I'd like to start with a case study. I want you to imagine you're seeing IJ, a 63-year-old Hispanic female, for a follow-up diabetes visit. And you've been seeing IJ for about six months now, and she's made great progress on her glycemic control with her A1C dropping from 10.3% to 7.7% today. The patient was referred to you after she was hospitalized with chest pain and had a coronary artery stent placement after primary PCI. And over the past few months, she's lost weight over 10 pounds, started to engage in some physical activity, and her blood pressure control has been excellent. However, you're concerned that her LDL cholesterol remains well above goal. She's been reluctant to take statin therapy because she's heard about all those side effects on television advertisements, and some of her friends have told her about the muscle pain they've experienced. She's currently taking lisinopril hydrochlorothiazide, uh, carvedilol and amlodipine for blood pressure, metformin and empagliflozin for diabetes, and low-dose aspirin. Now, she was prescribed a torvastatin 40 milligrams and had it filled, but admits to you that she has a nearly full bottle at home. She took the atorvastatin for about three days and then stopped it when she started to have an achy pain in her left shoulder. The patient states she feels great and has more energy now than she's had in years. Her blood pressure measured today in clinic was 118 over 64, and her pulse was 60. She weighs 196 pounds, and her BMI is 28.9. Fasting lipids drawn last week look okay. 
Fasting glucose was 96 and electrolytes were within normal limits. And her estimated GFR was greater than 60 mils per minute. Her total cholesterol was 166, LDL cholesterol of 104, HDL of 36, and triglycerides were 132. So what are some of the things going through your mind in a case like this? What additional information would you want to collect? And what kinds of interventions or additional medications would you be considering at this point? Before diving into the patient's dyslipidemia therapy, I did want to touch base about her diabetes. It's really great to see such a drastic reduction in her A1C. She's now approaching her goal of less than 7% with an A1C reduction of about 2.5 percentage points. She's maintained on metformin as well as an additional agent, the impagliflozin, which has a cardiovascular benefit. For these patients with established ASCVD, it's great to see medications such as an SGLT2 inhibitor and GLP-1 agonist that have the two-for-one effect, helping them control both their diabetes and helping them to prevent another ASCVD event. Regarding her blood pressure regimen, she's well below her goal of less than 130 over 80. She's utilizing an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker, which are indicated due to her coronary artery disease. I would want to ask her and monitor for any signs of hypotension, such as dizziness or lightheadedness. Now diving into the patient's lipid-lowering therapy, this patient is what we consider very high-risk ASCVD, according to the 2018 AHA-ACC multi-society guideline, given her previous ASCVD event with the concurrent diagnosis of diabetes and hypertension. This patient would qualify for an LDL cholesterol threshold of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. To help us lower the LDL cholesterol, the patient was prescribed atorvastatin 40 milligrams once daily, which is a high-intensity statin. In theory, this high-intensity statin would bring her LDL below the 70 milligram per deciliter threshold, given the expected outcome of a 50% reduction in LDL cholesterol from her current level of 104 milligrams per deciliter. If she didn't achieve this benchmark, that's when we'd start talking about either increasing the atorvastatin to 80 milligrams or using some of the other lipid-lowering agents, such as azetamibe or PCSK9 inhibitors. But for now, I feel the atorvastatin 40 milligrams is a great start. I agree with you, Joe. I also noted that she's taking a low-dose aspirin, and I consider that appropriate given her history of a cardiovascular event. Other information I'd want to collect first would be related to her lifestyle factors. I would want to congratulate IJ on her progress this far with lifestyle modifications, including that 10-pound weight loss that we saw. That's very impressive. And with this, I would want to use motivational interviewing strategies to learn more about her goals. Getting to know and supporting the patient will help to enhance my relationship with her and build trust. When considering next steps, the challenge now becomes maximizing benefits while minimizing risk of side effects from her pharmacologic therapy. Maximizing benefit could be through supporting the patient's medication adherence and relying on principles of the placebo effect. We'll get into a little bit more of those details later in our discussion. Minimizing risk of side effects includes minimizing risk of the nocebo effect, which is well established with statin therapy. Interestingly, I see that the statin-associated muscle symptoms range from about 3 to 5% in placebo-controlled trials, while in real-world observational studies, they're much higher at about 15 to 20%. I like to use the Statin-Associated Muscle Symptoms Clinical Index, or SAMS-CI as an abbreviation, to stratify likelihood of muscle-related symptoms being related to statin therapy. Based on SAMS-CI, the muscle symptoms IJ experienced are unlikely related to use of statin therapy. 
the nocebo effect is probably a contributing factor to her muscle-related symptoms. So based on that, I would focus on collecting information from IJ about other potential causes of her shoulder pain. I would ask what types of physical activity she has started as part of her lifestyle modifications, and if any of these activities could cause pain in her left shoulder. Through this discussion, we might be able to find out other contributing variables. As Joe described, our patient IJ has a clear indication for high-intensity statin therapy. However, once these side effects of concern have occurred and resulted in symptoms, whether from the pharmacologic substance or related to the nocebo effect, patients may be hesitant to retrial therapy again. It would certainly have been easier to try to prevent these nocebo effects up front through patient education, but unfortunately, we do not have control over these external factors at play, like television ads or the results of Google searching. Although the pain IJ experience is not likely related to her statin therapy, we can consider use of a less lipophilic statin, such as rosuvastatin, to minimize the risk of myalgias. If the pain was more likely related to statin therapy, I would consider starting at a lower dose or using an alternative dosing strategy, such as every other day dosing. In that case, if the patient had tolerated an alternative dosing regimen, the dose infrequently could then be titrated as tolerated. In this case, we now need to be strategic in how we approach the discussion with IJ regarding retrial of statin therapy. So let's talk about the results of the study by Rebecca Webster and her colleagues from King's College London. I think this is a fascinating paper and one I doubt many of our listeners have read. Uh, the paper was published in January 2018 in the Annals of Behavioral Medicine and is entitled Positively Framed Risk Information and Patient Information Leaflets Reduces Side Effect Reporting, a Double-Blind randomized control trial. And we provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study design and its major findings? So this study had a very interesting design. The objective of the trial was to determine the incidence of adverse effects after utilizing positively framed patient information leaflets, or as we'll use going forward, PILs, compared to standard framed PILs before receiving a placebo tablet. Patients were told that the medication they would receive was a, quote, common medication. Positively framed PILs presented adverse effects in the framing of 90% of patients do not experience this adverse effect. In contrast to standard framing we see within package inserts, which state that 10% of patients may experience this adverse effect. 203 healthy adult volunteers in the United Kingdom with an average age of 27 years old were randomized to receive one of the two PILs. They then ingested a placebo tablet and conducted a variety of cognitive activities for an hour to distract them. After the one-hour period, patients were asked to complete a questionnaire regarding the clarity of the PIL, their perceived credibility of the PIL, the presence of any adverse effects from the tablet, and the severity of the reported symptoms. Overall, about 47% of patients with the standard-worded PIL experienced symptoms mentioned within the PIL, and about 55% of patients mentioned any symptoms at all. This was statistically significantly higher than about the 32% of patients with a positively framed PIL who experienced a symptom within the PIL, and about 40% who experienced any symptom at all. There was no significant difference between the two groups regarding the severity of those symptoms. Well, Joe, let's talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses of this study. I think this was a pretty cleverly designed study, but are there any potential sources of bias or confounders that you think might have impacted the results? 
This was uh, definitely an interesting trial design to attempt to mitigate some of the potential nocebo effects. The study was able to exhibit a clear reduction in the number of patients who reported adverse effects between those who received the positively framed PIL versus the standard framing. Additionally, the blinded design, adequate power, and minimal differences between the two groups creates a strong sense of confidence that the difference in adverse effects lies within the framing of the PIL. Another strong point in the data analysis was that investigators collected any baseline symptoms or anxiety symptoms prior to administering the placebo tablet. These factors were controlled for when they reported the statistical analysis. One thing I did want to touch upon is the ethical component of conducting a nocebo study. The reason that many researchers may likely hesitate to conduct a nocebo trial is the simple fact that you're trying to induce or monitor for an adverse effect. Of course, as researchers, we want to reduce the potential harm to human subjects. Therefore, the investigators made the ethical choice to inform the patients that the nature of the study was to monitor for adverse effects. While this was necessary to conduct the trial ethically, it does introduce a potential bias into the results. Previous studies suggest that subjects tend to overreport symptoms to please investigators. This phenomenon may have occurred within the study as approximately 40 to 50% of all of the participants reported at least one adverse effect, regardless of the framing of the PIL. Given that the tablet was a placebo, one would suspect that this rate of adverse effects would be much lower. Another critique of the study design is the duration of the trial. Participants were only monitored for one hour in a controlled environment. As we all know from clinical practice, patients in an ambulatory setting may not report the adverse effects right away. In terms of traditional clinical trials for medications such as lipid-lowering agents or antihyperglycemic agents, these trials typically last years rather than one hour. While the benefits of the positive PILs were seen within the one hour, it's not clear if these would remain for longer time intervals. Lastly, I did want to draw attention to the baseline characteristics of the patients. Patients at an average age of 27 years old were about 68% female, about 60% white, and about 65% of them had some form of higher education. This demographic may not necessarily reflect the type of patients we see in our clinical practices all the time, particularly the age of the group, given the 27-year-old average. So Sarah, the, this study adds to a growing body of literature regarding the power of placebos and how the response to all medications is in part due to this effect, a belief that the medication will be beneficial, or in the case of nocebos, a belief that the medication will not be beneficial or maybe harmful. Most of us are aware that medications for pain can have strong placebo effects, but is the placebo effect all in your head? Can placebos really cause physiological changes and improve health outcomes beyond pain control? I find this topic truly fascinating, and the evidence around the placebo and nocebo effect goes to show just how powerful belief in the medication can be. You're right, there is more evidence for positive outcomes from placebos in areas where the psyche play a greater role, such as in pain. In one example of this, patients in a placebo study were first given an opioid for pain and were unknowingly switched to a placebo over time. Due to both conditioning and belief in the medication, patients continued to experience similar levels of pain relief after the switch to placebo. Interestingly, the study also demonstrated the nocebo effect as respiratory depression was also noted despite the switch to inert placebo. As pain is one of the most common examples of the placebo effect, research in this area demonstrates altered neurotransmitter release and changes in pain signaling in response to placebo when factors such as belief, hope, conditioning, and expectancy are present. Outside of pain, some examples are more surprising and demonstrate the neurobiological mechanisms at play. 
In one placebo study, patients were administered cyclophosphamide with a flavored syrup, and immune responses were tracked over time. Later in the study, patients were switched from the cyclophosphamide-containing syrup to an inert-flavored syrup, and immune responses remained similar to those seen when cyclophosphamide was administered. This result was somewhat surprising, but this is likely due to conditioning and developing a response that way. Additional research is needed to fully understand the neurobiological mechanisms at play in this example. The question is, what can we do as pharmacists to harness the power of placebos and minimize risk of the nocebo effect? First is to consider the role of expectation and how this can be influenced. Expectations of medication can come from prior experience with the medication, from information provided about the medication during counseling and education, such as the pills we saw in our study example, as well as from others, such as friends, television commercials, or of course, the dreaded Google. While we have little control of external factors, we can certainly play a role in providing patient education. The example of positive reframing of pills is one modification that can be made, and similar approaches can be made with a verbal communication of risks. Additionally, a patient's trust in the clinician plays a role in maximizing the placebo and minimizing the nocebo effect. While pharmacists are already known as trusted healthcare professionals, additional efforts to enhance trust in the patient-pharmacist relationship can be made. This trust is often enhanced through infusing empathy and warmth into conversations with patients. So let's return to our case. IJ has established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and is not taking a high-potency statin due to fear of adverse effects. Do you think positively framing a discussion about side effects would be useful or effective in this case? How would you approach the discussion with this patient? And how would you avoid being deceitful or misleading? Indeed, if the patient experiences side effects after you've convinced her to restart atorvastatin, it seems to me she'd become more distrustful of you, and that's going to weaken your relationship with her and ultimately diminish the therapeutic power of belief. Great question, Stuart. IJ really is like many of the patients we see in our day-to-day practice. Whether it be from the internet or anecdotal evidence, Patients may have information at their disposal to shape their feelings or expected outcomes of a medication without really giving it a chance. When approaching a conversation regarding a new medication, I always lay out the risks and benefits for a patient. By having a conversation with the patient and utilizing a shared decision-making approach, you're able to get the patient buy-in. No medication is useful unless the patient agrees to take it, and it works even better if they believe it will work well. When presenting a statin to the patient, I'd first talk about the short-term benefits at lowering her LDL cholesterol and some of the long-term benefits of preventing a second ASCVD event. I also like to engage the patient and ask her what she has heard about statins or if any of her family members have taken them previously to address any concerns up front that she may have. In terms of utilizing the study, I do believe that there may be an ability to transfer some of these results into clinical practice. While the study only utilized written communication rather than typical verbal communication we use within a clinical setting, switching to a positively framed approach is an easy switch for an ambulatory care pharmacist. When discussing the side effects, I may use some of the techniques from the Webster article by saying things such as 95% of patients do not experience any muscle side effects when starting statin. I agree, Joe. In addition to discussion of the benefits and risk of statin therapy, I would also share information regarding the ways that statin-associated muscle symptoms commonly present, such as bilateral symptoms in the thighs or upper arms. This may provide some reassurance that aches in the left shoulder are less likely related to statin therapy. 
I would then discuss choices and options through shared decision-making, as Joe mentioned. Providing patients choices has demonstrated the ability to attenuate the nocebo effect. In this case, it could be a choice to retry a torvastatin 40 milligrams daily, to trial rosuvastatin 20 milligrams daily instead, or, while less ideal, ultimately the patient does have the autonomy to decide against taking a statin therapy at all. We certainly hope that this isn't the case. I previously noted that this patient deserves praise for her efforts towards weight loss and increasing exercise, and this positivity and warmth within our conversation can influence the patient's overall mindset while strengthening the pharmacist-patient relationship. Taking a similar positive yet honest approach to discussing pharmacologic therapy can add additional benefit to the well-established benefits of statins. Well, Joe, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss the therapeutic power of belief, including the power of placebos and nocebos. And I think it's clear from your comments that we need to learn how to harness this power and that the power is not simply in our heads, but actually translate to physiological changes. Well, tell us what you think. How do you tap into the power of belief during your patient encounters? How do you positively frame discussions about adverse effects without misleading or being deceitful? Well, leave us a comment. Only iFormerX members can leave comments. So if you're not already a member of iFormerX, sign up today. It's free. And to those in our audience who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists or who are planning on becoming a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you need to know about our partnership with the American Pharmacists Association. APHA has made our commentaries and podcasts available for board recertification and continuing education credit. To learn more about APHA's ambulatory care board prep and recertification program, click on the link at the bottom of the written commentary posted on the iFormerX website. And lastly, a special thanks to Diana Isaacs from the Cleveland Clinic and Christy Schumacher from the Midwestern Chicago College of Pharmacy for maintaining the Diabetes Key Clinical Trial and Guideline resource page on the iFormerX website. Diana and Christy have been frequent contributors to iFormerX and maintaining the diabetes research page is no easy feat because there's constantly things that are changing in practice. So thank you, Christy and Diana, for your time and talent to keep us all informed and up to date. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be well, my friends.